It's September 21st, 2021, and I'm back with Matt McGregor to discuss the week's acquisition headlines. Tell us why small businesses can't get contracts, Pentagon asks. Defense One. The Department of Defense received an A grade on the Small Business Administration's annual scorecard about contracting with small businesses in 2020. The department has met its contracting goals for seven straight years, she said. Uh, Yet over the past decade, small businesses in the defense industrial base shrank by 40%. So what's going on here? Hicks was, DepSec Def Hicks was actually asking, you know, what are your problems? It looks like from, from our own internal, you know, investigations, we've actually been doing a pretty good job, I guess. Um, you know, I wonder what, what your thoughts are, but it seems like, you know, some of the things that they're grading them on, like how many dollars had gone to small business in, in different um, subcategories, but then also, you know, what's your execution rate? Are you paying them on time? Are you paying them in 15 days? I think the DOD is pretty unique on that, which is big small businesses, but like those types of execution metrics might not be getting at what, what, you know, the real problems that we keep hearing about. Right. Yeah. I think you also, um, yeah, the DOD had, does, does have, you know, does really prioritize, I think meet, meeting those, uh, small business, ADA, you know, those uh, kind of disadvantaged, uh, so there is there is kind of a focus on that, and I think contracting officers take that really seriously. But I think you do have to kind of differentiate between the different types of small businesses, right? Um, you might have some that you know are maybe maybe they're not a prime, you know, maybe they're uh, they're getting credit from uh, some of the the sub the primes uh, actually having a good subcontracting plan. So um, you know, so I think you have to dig into this a little bit more to see exactly how that A grade, you know, um, how that A grade is determined and if it's warranted. But I think if you talk about, you know, given the segregation of how you talk about the different small businesses, if you go more to the non-traditional side, the folks that are, you know, moving up the SIBR ladder, I think they would argue that, yeah, maybe they get their SIBR contracts fast, but they don't necessarily get some of those other contracts, those scaling contracts that actually give them the business they need to become viable, right? So, so yeah, I think I think this needs a little bit more digging into, but I think we also know that in general contracting timelines have not been positive. So, so I think they'll probably get some pretty good feedback on yeah, you know, we get the contracts, or maybe we get them through a prime, or you know, we appreciate the attention, but you know, sometimes we sit in limbo for X amount of time, and that just like kills our business. You know, so yeah, it'd be interesting to see what they get. Yeah, it definitely seems when you're a venture back company, you need to kind of get to growth. And so that that scalability is is one of the issues. Sure, DOD is great for small businesses wanting to stay small businesses, right? But then the I guess the the other piece that you're talking about there is the pulp. And yeah, it's like when you got six months a year, maybe more to kind of get a contract on and you're a small business, it's like you don't want to go through those big, you know, hiring and firing. And you know, when they the government will try to avoid those with larger contractors, right? When it's like, oh, I got to fire two or 3,000 people from my shipyard or whatever, because I'm not getting the order, you know, for that ship. It's like, all right, things are going to change. Like people are going to probably put that ship back in. But for a small business, it probably feels the same way, right? You're running a business, but um, it's not as big of a deal. Like you're just going to be kind of out to lurch until you can get the contract award, find out what the decision is. And then you got to hire them back because you can't really carry those that burn rate. Yeah, exactly. And actually I did, I did cl- to clarify the point I made about subcontracting. It does look like the 56% of it does go to prime. So it is actually impressive that 50% of that small business actually is for the prime and only about 20%, 19% is for subs. So, so and yep. yeah, it's kind of interesting. But yeah. Air Force tried to kill the A-10 by clipping its wings and starving it of parts, task and purpose. The Air Force efforts to starve the A-10 also lovingly called the warthog, include allowing supplier contracts to lapse so that they can't provide replacement parts and reducing the Air Force maintenance depot's capacity to conduct overhauls. But one of the most effective efforts to ground the plane is the Air Force's move to delay rewinging the A-10, which has basically grounded many of the jets that can't fly because their current wings are too old. Matt, what's your view here? Well, for one, I think the, the Pogo guys must uh, own some <laughs> A10 stock that I don't know about or something. I, but um, Pierre Spray is, uh, is lovingly part of that group. But yes, <laughs> no, I mean they're right. You know, this, this did happen, but it didn't happen quite in the nefarious way. I think they say. I mean, what what essentially happened is that the Air Force and man, I was in some of the meetings and it's going back years, but 
you know, probably 2016 or 2017, probably 2016, we were basically, we did a force restructure and we said, we, we need to move to getting, you know, more, more F-35s. We need to uh, look at the high-end conflict fight because we're kind of winding down a lot of these other conflicts. And so we looked at how many A-10s we had and how many we needed to sustain kind of the Afghanistan fight and, you know, closing out the Iraqs, the, the Iraq fight. And we said, you know, 173 is enough. We don't, we don't need to do, you know, rewing the entire fleet. That bought us enough time. There was other sustainment stuff going on uh, along with that. And so we, you know, they, we presented that to Congress. We did show the Hill that this was our plan. We thought we could get a good force mix with all the different platforms we had. And so, um, and the F-16s, some of the F-16s, we, we realized we're going to last longer. Some of the F-15s were going to last longer. So, so anyway, it was part of a larger decision. And so we didn't fund those hundred wings and we thought we had a good plan and that it would be supported. But, you know, we found out that how much the Hill really cared and people, you know, people in Arizona, you know, came out and it became a big thing with uh, John McCain. So, so yeah, you know, I think we're, uh, I think the Air Force realized that that was not going to happen. And then we actually did try to go award that contract. And it was very, very expensive to restart that line. So basically, the, the proposals were, this is a big deal. So the Air Force did not do that intentionally. But that is sort of how it played out. And, and they definitely, after that decision was made, the Air Force never wanted this. And it has been sort of pushed on them each, each budget cycle. Well, thanks for uh, giving us the party line. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. No, I, I tend to, I tend to agree. I, you know, a lot of this is just like an honest disbelief or an honest difference of opinions as to the effectiveness of the weapon. You know, the Air Force tends to be forward-looking and want the next leapfrog, right? Whereas, you know, maybe Pogo was looking at and saying, you know, this is the tried and true thing that had worked. You know, we love it, right? Like, and it's pretty cost-effective for the most part. Um, it's, it's not exactly a high maintenance aircraft, except for that re-winging, but I mean, they're taking a lot of damage. So they can take a lot of damage with small caliber. Um, but I think when you talk to any pilot who, who, who's, who flies the, you know, who basically flew the A-10, they would tell you, they would never want to get anywhere near a Russia IADS or a Chinese, you know, Chinese IADS kind of, uh, yeah, no doubt threat, threat scenario. They just wouldn't want to do that. Yeah, especially like it'll be interesting on a future battle battlefield, like thinking about if you kind of have pretty good targeting of pretty cheap munitions, right? Um, an A10 might not be in the best place. You'd rather have something attributable. <laughs> you don't want you don't want a person, you know, in that kind of situation. Yeah, well, we did. We showed the analysis. Nobody really. It still it still didn't really help calm the emotions, but we showed the analysis in Afghanistan, and Iraq. We used B1s, B52s. And F-15s for you know 80% or 75% of the you know the missions for close air support. It really wasn't A-10 didn't play as big of a role as some people say. The Army loves it; they like to have have it overhead. But but ultimately, most of those missions were done by higher altitude aircraft. So well, still, the Army likes it. Yeah. Say, right? <laughs> the Army can take it over, but they, they have to fund it and uh, fund pilots. <laughs> my, my my final thought on the A-10 is like, I I take the Pogo point that. The Air Force says it's going to do something like, oh, we're going to create a capability that's the next generation or that does this or, you know, but it never comes, right? There's no, I don't have the trust um, in the future, like, and I don't think they have the trust in the future. So they're like, you know, we need the new A-10 or whatever the next generation of that thing might be. Maybe it is just more, maybe it is what's already going on, but like, let's demonstrate some stuff and show it, right? And then, then we can start talking about retirement. Um, well, the, the ether was specifically designed to replace the A-10 and F-16, right? So the, um, the F-35's ability to target, um, to be able to target, uh, enemy forces, you know, is, is impressive. I mean, it, it has its targeting ability and its radar and everything else is much more superior. So, you know, but it's yeah, not it's, doing like, it's not doing the same things. It's not like loitering and providing like that kind of close air support. I mean, it'll like target the hell out of something. It's not uh, strafing with a big gun. No, that's true. But, but I'm not even saying strafing with a big gun. I'm just saying like providing a capability to someone on the ground that is equivalent in, in, in respect to strafing on the ground and loitering for a while. Yeah, I mean, it can loiter. Um, you know, can it loiter at the slow speed where it's it's as as much of a presence? No, it's probably going to be much higher, higher up and you're not going to see it. It's not going to be like that. 
it's almost like deterrence in a way. Like I think for the army folks and, and I, and I empathize with them when they're on the ground, they can see that it's a presence for enemy troops. It, it kind of intimidating. Um, and that's, that's worth a lot, you know, for them, but you know, the F-35 can still target the same things. It's just not as much of a presence. I, I, I really think that's kind of what it boils down to. Well, exact. I mean, the persistent presence is really the problem because it's like, you know, you can't wait all day, all week <laughs> to get like an F-35 squadron or just sortie to come out and support you. Well, also though, but the, the one thing we challenge you had with the, the light, um, um, what was it light attack aircraft light attack things i can remember attack the light attack aircraft was that effect that it was slow and then and the a10 is fairly slow so you know they can't get, get there fast th that's why the a10 didn't do as many missions because you know army units are out there all over the place the marine units um all the marines kind of took care of themselves for the most part but you know you might have army units that were you know 10 different places around afghanistan and they didn't always need a10 support they didn't always need you know uh, bombs dropped but when they did, you know, it was sometimes fairly urgent and the best thing to get there was a fast, you know, a fast platform and the A-10 would take a while and the light, light attack aircraft would take even longer. So that's a, that's a little bit why we, we didn't go with the light attack is its ability to get on target was, you know, not responsive. Um, yeah, well, you know, like I would love to see a project convergence that does kind of like a combat plus air support role rather than kind of like okay, there's missiles coming at us. Let's, let's fire back some missiles, right? I mean, not that that's a bad thing, but how about some experimentation there to see, you know, it, the future is probably not going to look like the past. So whatever it is in the future probably won't be like an A-10 flying around uh, with a 30 millimeter cannon depleted uranium, right? It's going to be something else. So, but like, where are these experiments to go do that sometime? Yeah, I mean, but I think we're seeing it with the drones. I mean, I, re I really do think like the yeah. one thing that the army could have, I mean, they're already using drones in some ways for like ISR kind of stuff. But, you know, there, there could be uh, more combat drones that are just intended for uh, for supporting, you know, I don't know what the right, is it a platoon or is it a company or battalion or whatever the right force size is, but, uh, 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 you know, different uh, drones that, that have some combat capability Maybe they fired like an APKWS or some kind of really small munition uh, that can <clears throat> take out, you know, support troops basically in direct combat. You'd have to be, you have to have a lot of trust in it, right, to be that close to humans. Um, but but maybe that is where it moves. Instead of having a, a very large platform, you you have some smaller kind of drone kind of platforms that that have some similar capability and, and can provide that cover. So yeah, there's probably a lot more, you know, white sands or something. I, I could see more experimentation in that realm. And then you're all right, let's move on. New Navy task force will be all about bringing unmanned capabilities to the Middle East, the drive. The Navy did not specify what unmanned systems would fall under the task force's auspices. However, the outlets also said that it was understanding that the full array of the platforms would include some of those that the services had demonstrated during a huge unmanned focus exercise, the Unmanned Integrated Battle Problem 21, or UXS IBP 21. Uh, that was held off of the coast of California earlier this year. All told, Fifth Fleet Navstent now looks to be become one, an incubator of sorts to, for the Navy to begin move, moving a variety of unmanned concepts to operations out of the realm of experimentation and actual day-to-day -day operations in the Middle East and beyond. So we, we kind of reported on that, that integrated battle problem 21. A bunch of interesting kind of systems were kind of participating and they were actually doing some live fire stuff, I believe, as well. And now they're kind of bringing it out into the combatant command. So this is actually a pretty, I think it's a pretty good news story, huh? That we'll, we'll see how much um, it actually does. I think this is huge. I, I didn't, and I honestly didn't expect it. So, I mean, the fact that there is a task force devoted to unmanned operations and, you know, you have a three-star, you know, admiral out there saying we're, we're all on board with this to, you know, put unmanned systems, what's the, what's the quote here? We want to put more systems out in the maritime domain above, on, and below the sea. Um, so that's a real commitment. And just the number of unmanned or autonomous or, you know, partially manned or whatever uh, you want to call it, um, that took, 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 uh, uh, that participated in this exercise was pretty impressive. I mean, you had the fire scouts, you had the MC guardians, the, the, the long, ultra long flight endurance vehicles, and you had some, you know, some USVs, the Sea Hunter and Seahawk, and 
man, I mean, high altitude balloons and swarming stuff. I mean, they, they really went all out on, on this, uh, on this exercise. Some of the conversations I had had recently with the, with some Navy autonomy folks, I, I kind of thought they were still going to be a little bit more hedging on this. I thought they were going to wait to see, to kind of prove out some more stuff. So um, yeah, really encouraging to see this kind of step forward, because I think until you actually start to try to develop conops around some of these platforms and to develop an integrated sort of battle um, strategy, they, they sort of just become these disparate systems that just like perform a function here or there, but aren't contributing in the, in the, you know, the way they could in a, you know, collected way. So this, I think will actually start to show is, okay, how do we pull all these things together to, you know, some of those key capabilities that are needed in the different fights. And yeah, I look forward to seeing more about what this new task force 59 does. Be interesting. Yeah. Uh, next one we're on. Heighton says Pentagon moving unbelievably slow with modernization, National Defense Magazine. It's going to take us 10 to 15 years to modernize five, 400 ICBM silos that already exist, he said, referring to the ground-based strategic deterrent program. China is basically building almost that many overnight, he said, adding that the speed at which the threat is evolving is really what concerns me most. Heighton is also highlighted frustrations with the Pentagon's pace in developing more resilient space architectures. That problem has persisted for over a decade, although efforts are underway at the Space Force and other agencies to address it, he noted. So changing the requirements, I was actually hoping Heighton would have kind of shaken up the requirements process in the JSIDs a little bit more than he has, uh, but potentially, I guess, like software and middle tier pathways have, in a, in a sense, kind of taken you know, delegated that to the services and whatever they wanted to do. But, um, you know, Heighton says a lot of the right things. I always like like hearing what Heighton's saying, but I'm not really sure, like, what the steps forward are. Yeah, I know. We had a lot of hope, I think, that he would he would make more radical kind of change to the requirements process when he was, when he took over as vice chairman. And, you know, I don't, I, I think it's just one of those jobs that's so demanding. You you can't always, you know, you have so many fires to put out. You don't always get to do some of the stuff you want to do. Um, so yeah, the requirements process is not that unchanged, I'd say, from the way it's always been for most programs. Like you said, MTA does have some exemptions, and so that helps. Uh, software pathway, um, not completely exempt, but has some more streamlined approaches. But yeah, ultimately, I think for commercial acquisition, when we start talking about, you know, pulling things from the commercial sector and operationalizing them you know, making them part of, um, you know, part of the, the larger joint force. Yeah, we're still a little bit living in, in that Cold War era of, you know, we're going to take 10 to 15 years to develop this thing. And so that's how the requirements are structured. It's not always that timely to get those requirements um, approved. So if it's a joint solution that you're trying to take advantage of commercial technology, it is going to be, it's going to be pretty painful. I mean, I think, I think it's still, it still needs a lot of reform, but um but at least that I think one thing is that at least that is acknowledged, it's understood. And, and I think there, there are folks in the Pentagon that, that want to see more reform. And so hopefully the next iteration of JSIDs will, will see a little bit more dramatic, dramatic change. But, but um, yeah, yeah, he does say the right things. And he's right about space architectures. That's kind of been going on a long time. Space Force is trying to stand up the SWAC, which isn't getting total support from, from the House side. So we'll see, we'll see where that goes. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. Sad to see how Yeah. I don't know about the resilient space arc. I mean, SDA is moving pretty fast and furious. Um, maybe that was more of a comment towards the rest of SME, SMC 2.0. I don't know. Well, no, that was the, um, the Space Warfighting Analysis Center or the Space Warfighting Architecture. Yeah. There's, maybe there's analysis, but they're supposed to develop the next you know, the resilient architecture that kind of- I see, I, I got you. Yeah. Well, isn't that always going to, like, I kind of, one of the blog posts that I had come out today where Tim Grayson was like, yeah. you know, all these prolifer proliferated Leo stuff, we got, you know, not just like Starlink and OneWeb and Amazon, they're all kind of moving, you know, forward at their own pace. We have like, you know, DARPA Blackjack and SDA with their, with their uh, different constellations and SMC and others, potentially intelligence communities or whatever, they're all kind of moving on their own and like, no one's going to stop and just like, oh, we're just going to all do the same thing, right? They all have their own different kind of, you know, purposes and things that they're doing. So 
actually, the, which is nice because that gets right into our next one about uh, the space-based adaptive communications node, space bacon. But I wonder what your thought kind of on, on that, on that kind of idea of like, well, is there a frustration with the pace of the development of like this kind of overarching architecture? Should the architecture be kind of loose and then like kind of working towards these mission integration tools on the back end to stitch everything together? Well, I think the first part that was that's being worked is is the data, the data piece, data sharing, yeah. which is very key. And I think unified the the unified um, the UDL um, uh, is, is has actually made a lot of good progress. So they're 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 kind of tackling that piece of it. But it is it is a fact that there's there are tons of different terminals that the different satellite systems have to use. They don't talk to each other. They're not interoperable. A lot of you know a lot of excess kind of, uh, you know, a hardware and infrastructure that's, that has to be supported, which is expensive. And so we do need to move to an architecture where we can plug and play different uh, pieces into it. And some of those pieces will be commercial. Some might be military. Some might be, you know, commercial buses with, you know, a bunch of military hosted payloads. So there's a lot of different um, ways that we can get after space capabilities, you know, going forward, but we do need to at least why, it, why isn't space bacon the, space the kind bacon, of answer to that? Right, it might it, be, but it does require you to actually put those optical data links. So it's only going to be for the new stuff and yeah. stuff that's already in development. You know whether they can add that in, we'll see. I mean, there some of the new satellites do have optical uh, data links for 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 downward communication to the to the um, ground segment, but they you know um, I don't know if this will be something they could switch out. But I love the idea of having these, you know, being something that can be re reconfigurable because that's what we don't have now, right? It's like whatever construct design you establish on a satellite, that's the way you're doing. You're using L band, X band, and that's it. Um, so these optical data links will, I think, help with that. And so I love what they're doing it, but I mean, all the research I've done on this space bacon, it's very early stage. I mean, they're just now asking for proposals. It's still very- It's going to be five to 10 years, right? Yeah, it could be. I hopefully it's faster, but but it's still early stage, so. Well, so some of that, you know, the one, what we talked about last week, OneWeb, they're, they're, they're just going to like outfit it with an antenna, talk to something in Geo. And then I guess that was AEHF or something. And, and they kind of like get the interoperability that way. Yeah, yeah, that's that is That one is interesting just because- yeah, it depends on, you know, there's also a delay. The one thing with optical, the one thing the Space Force has been kind of focused on is optical uh, relay because uh, data is often very perishable. If it's, um, um, you know, if it's a mission or something, you need to get it as soon as possible and for intelligence and stuff too. So the ability to uh, not have to wait to be over, you know, a terminal, a ground station where you can actually download the data uh, is really important because there's a huge time lag with that. So I know optical crosslinks, they call them optical crosslinks. That is a big deal. But um, yeah, I think this will be, it'll be interesting to see where, uh, what the different solutions that come out for, yeah, whether whether it's, you know, communicating with the GeoBird, I don't know how much faster that would be because you still have to wait till you're in line with the GeoBird. So yeah, I don't know. It'd be, be interesting to see the different architecture uh, options that kind of come out. SWAC needs to get funded to do. Yeah, I remember I was, I forget which company this was, but it was like a new new space company that was, uh, they basically were going to be like the cloud in the sky where they're basically beaming, you know, information back and forth um, through optical optical crosslinks, like between satellites and like the, the distance between them and or whatever they're and like the amount of information that could, that they could put on it. Like basically you could have like, AWS in the sky, just beaming data back and forth between each other. And that's kind of like the lowest cost way, uh, potentially of doing some of this stuff. And it was just like a kind of an interesting, I don't know how realistic that was, but it was, it was an interesting idea. Well, DISA, I mean, um, so DISA has right there, they're kind of end to end, like they're the, the DOD network. And so there's, you know, supposed to be able to get data from, you know, from point to point. It is, it is, they actually do use satellites for some of those hops. So if there is a, you know, for resiliency, especially if there's like a break or there's some kind of issue, you know, they can, they can route and go different ways. And, and some of that does go through SATCOM. So I think that definitely I could see that in the future as more and more commercial companies now are, are putting these things up in Sterlink and, 
you know, there's just, there's so much potential there for, for, for one, right. Like cell phone service. Like I still, I still get an incredible amount of, uh, you know, dead zones, like to be able to use more Leo satellites for maybe filling in some of those gaps and stuff like that. Like, yeah, you can see all kinds of potential for, uh, for that to become more common. Lockheed unveils new tanker design LMXT from Breaking Defense. Lockheed on Friday unveiled its LMT or XT tanker design, which is one that should be familiar to tanker aficionados. The platform is largely built off of Airbus's multi-role tanker transport MRTT with some technical upgrades and an extended range. In the Air Force's request for information, the service stated it wants to buy 140 to 160 of the interim design in order to help retire some of the oldest KC-135 tankers. The re- final request for proposals is expected in 2022. The A-30 tanker design is already used in 13 countries around the world and has already been certified for key American aircraft. So this is something that's been coming down the pike that I think we've known about for the last few months, but it was still kind of a surprise. Um, so they're moving forward. And I think that just, you know, Lockheed, Airbus kind of teaming seems to, to make some sense. Yeah, it sounds like they beefed it up too. So the, the um, they did Lockheed, you know, Lockheed's involvement, I think helped improve, you know, some of the, um, the, the range and the fuel capacity. They also seemed like they, they're they doing some type of open system architecture. I don't know exactly, but they're thinking about that JADC2 piece and, uh, you know, putting some, you know, resilient, you know, comms and data links and stuff. So, so yeah, you know, I mean, I, I think I, I might question if they actually buy, if the Air Force actually buys 140 or 160 of these, like they say, um, I could see this, uh, what's the follow-on, MCX or MCY, I could see that follow-on being delayed for some time because that's a pretty substantial number. And, you know, by the time they get those, all the KC-46s and all those in there, they'll have a, a fairly, you know, fairly robust tanker fleet. And then you know, invariably, like the like the Navy's doing, there'll probably be some unmanned drone, um, tanker drones that come into play more more commonly. So yeah, this will be interesting to see just how um, how this MCY uh, or KCY thing actually comes comes into play. How much money is actually devoted to that? I could see that being deferred for some time if something like the MRT is 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 is, uh, is bought on board. Definitely. Yeah. Um, there's no reason. It seems like. You don't need a clean sheet design kind of for another tanker for a long time, like unless yeah. you're doing it in a, in a drone fashion. So maybe the KCY, that's kind of end up what it will be. Of course, that the MQ-25 had its uh, first uh, connection with it, I think, last week, which we did yeah. not report on, but was everywhere in the news. Yeah, that was cool. So next one, we got some good news stories. AFRL and Defense Innovation Unit launched new phase of Golden Horde Vanguard program, AFRL. This virtual event, a digital engineering pipeline that encompasses software, hardware in the loop, and surrogate UAVs aims to rapidly integrate, develop, and test transformational network, collaborative, and autonomous, or NCA, weapons capabilities. DIU recently awarded the contracts of six gladiators through the commercial solutions opening, great, uh, including uh, auto... Nodine, never heard of that one, Episci, L3 Harris, Lockheed Martin, Shield AI, and Systems and Technology Research, while Georgia Tech Research Institute and AFRL government team round out the field, the Golden Horde, which employs semi-autonomous capabilities to operate without human control, ultimately enables weapons to react to change in the environment as well as loses and uh, degradations of their own systems. Although these systems can operate without human control, they can only engage targets or specific groups previously selected by a human operator as part of the mission planning process. So I think we talked about this recently. Golden Horde kind of just, uh, I think it kind of like fell off, right? They're just like, well, it's done here and there's no program of record for it. So there it was. And we're like, oh, damn, (laughs) like that's, is that just going to like, it's not going to go anywhere, but. It's good to see that they were able, AFRL and DIU were able to scrape up some money, kind of keep it going, and uh, we'll see, you know, what kind of comes from it. But I think, you know, this kind of coliseum, I think is what they call it, um, is a great idea. It's a low-cost idea, too, because they're not going to be, like, flying the real things. It's more of, like, they were saying, kind of like alpha dogfight, but kind of, like, on a bigger scale and, um, you know, testing a lot more things. But, you know, being able to take that and then translate it rapidly into 
uh, you know, prototypes and, and experiments will be huge. Yeah, but I think, and I do think this shows the the importance of kind of experimentation. Um, I know Secretary, you know, Kendall, the uh, the AFA this week, you know, made made a lot of comments about, you know, we need to stop doing experimentation that's not tied to, you know, something that's going to go operational, you know, very in the very near term. But I mean, I I think this kind of reemphasizes that. Um, you know, some of these Vanguard programs that the Air Force started, they're not necessarily getting, getting all the funding, you know, that they probably, probably should, you know, the Skyborgs and Golden Hordes and, and, and whatnot. But, you know, they are kind of demonstrating the potential. And so I really do hope that, you know, some of this, some of this trust that they're building by showing what can be done, you know, showing that some of this uh, swarm capability, the fact that, um, you know, they, they can kind of uh, deliver effects you know, in contested areas, you know, that we don't, we don't really have a lot of good solutions for in some cases. So yeah, if you don't have connectivity, it's okay. You know, it's programmed in a way that's not going to go off and bomb something you don't intend it to, but you know, maybe it can continue on its mission and actually complete the mission. So, so yeah, I, I think all of this is great. It's just, to me, this demonstration experimentation campaigns for these kinds of things, it's going to take a little while to build the trust to employ them at scale. Uh, you really are going to have to make sure that, you know, make the operational community feel comfortable but uh, all of this just i think goes to making it more uh, more high, a higher level of potential for it to become uh, a reality and to become a you know a capability that's that's deployed more frequently so so yeah i wonder you know is ai you know like how you said have like test pilots that would die um and there's like risk in that and the u.s used to just be willing to take that risk because it was a high risk environment and cold early cold war years you know it's like ai i don't know that kind of that kind of similar thing where it's like you gotta experiment with it and people just might die but you know one of the things that kind of makes me worry i mean of course you know the u.s disadvantage there in terms of that ability to take risks relative to china with these things but also like you know what's happened over the past few years especially with like trying to limit civ- civilian casualties and all that kind of stuff and any kind of blowback i don't think china would really care what's happening in other countries you know they're as long as it's not in their own country right like um but we would care what would happen in collateral countries nearby or anything else that might be uh like commercial shipping or whatever so I don't yeah know. well especially with weapons there's a lot of i mean i don't know if the general public kind of recognizes it but you know there every time a weapon is released there's there's kind of a legal review of is this a, you know, valid target, you know, is the outcome commensurate with the risk of, you know, civilian casualties, like, there's a whole, there's a whole weaponeering kind of process that goes on there. And yes, mistakes are made. And sometimes targets are not, you know, not as accurate as, as we want them, or, you know, maybe there was some bad intel or whatever. But in general, there's a lot of thought that put into a weapons. Right. So, so yeah, there will always be, I think, a pretty high bar. But this is why I, I really love what the task 59 that we just talked about with the Navy, because there's also a lot of risk, I think, in the South China Sea with if they really are going to deploy these unmanned ships, you know, how do they interact with the PL, PLN? How do they, you know, how do they, how do they, uh, you know, interface if they're attacked? You know, what, what kind of, what kind of, uh, and how does the U.S. view that, right? If a drone ship is attacked, is that an attack on on the U.S., do we respond? You know, how do we respond? So I do think we are kind of in a new space, and the weapons will probably be on the higher end of the trust factor. But hopefully, we can learn things on the lower risk piece that allow us to kind of build up, and we feel more comfortable with with doing more here. But, do you think that they chose the Middle East because it was like, well, it's not China, it's not in the South China Seas, and there's like Iran and yeah. Yemen or whatever, like these random things there that we can kind of like potentially test this out on or if things go bad then it's not so big a deal <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah, absolutely <laughs> ellen lord don't be don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good with cmmc from FedScoop. the program has been under an internal review since march essentially halting the progress in implementation and keeping many leaders in the department mum on the program while i think there should be collaboration with the cio i do not support moving of billets to C or handling or handing overall leadership from ASD industrial policy, she said. Lord said that she frequently hear 
heard from industry groups that costs associated with CMMC would be too high, creating barriers to entry specifically difficult for small businesses to overcome. One idea DOD is still contemplating is government-approved cloud infrastructure for software development. So that last part was actually kind of a a new aspect, like government-approved cloud infrastructure would then make it easier for CMMC, you know, but like, I don't really understand why like that's different than today. Cause I think Amazon AWS, like if you go on the, the FedRAMP approved one, you already have a lot of that CMMC stuff baked into it. So you're already kind of down the route. So, but anyway, I, you know, nothing too ne- new here. I mean, Ellen Lord is kind of saying what we all already knew, <laughs> right? So I guess we'll just see what happens. But I did not hear that they were going to move it to the CIO. So that was new too. Well, the, the CIO, I mean, is always going to be involved because they, they yeah. actually do kind of run the cybersecurity piece. So, um, you know, so there, even though the CISO is there, that, you know, the CIO has a lot of play with that. But I think the um, NDIA actually came out with a great paper. I don't know if it came out yesterday or actually today, but they came out with um, an alternative for CMMC and they made some really good points in there. And I think one of them is that a lot of businesses actually are, you know, they don't really have a lot, like not a lot of businesses, especially smaller businesses, are not actually maintaining their own servers, right? The on-prem sort of construct is not not cost-effective. And so so most companies are moving to AWS or Azure or what what have you, some other cloud service provider. And so if those providers are FedRAMP certified, what reciprocity do they have for CMMC? And I don't think to date that CMC, uh, the, the, you know, the accreditation body or whatever, I don't think they've been very clear about that. And so NDIA kind of makes the point that, yeah, they need to be very clear about that. They need to be very clear about allowable costs. And so, yeah, I, I, I don't think, I don't, I don't know why Ellen Lord has such a strong opinion now about whether it should be a CIO or ASD policy, but regardless of how, who, you know, they just need to make sure that those questions are addressed and that it's clearly understood because, it will be, it will look really, really bad if the final rollout after all this time, they still aren't answering some of these basic questions. So, so I hope, um, yeah, I hope they come out with, you know, better, uh, clearer guidance on this. Yeah. I want to stick in with the, the kind of software world, Air Force software platform expansion stalled by cybersecurity concerns from FedScoop. Uh, you know, one of the things here, there, there's a bunch of interesting things, uh, but you know, one of them was that the it seemed like the Air Force was actually doing cybersecurity from kind of like white hat hackers. So the, the quote here is, uh, but talks. So Konigsberg or Nelsonberger added that Platform One sometimes attracts criticism because it regularly works with cybersecurity red teams, white hat hackers tasked with playing the role of adversary. And because the teams are good at what they do, they occasionally find vulnerabilities. So that's always been my kind of view of uh, the CMMC alternative. It's kind of just like a continuous monitoring program uh, where you either have bug bounties or otherwise, but like, you know, rather than a checklist of processes, wouldn't a better, isn't like having people who are actually doing that kind of penetration testing or what, what have you, um, kind of a better use of people's time and, and developing skill and, you know, effectiveness at closing gaps and holes. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it has to be kind of both, right? I mean, the NIST controls, they vary, you know, they vary across, you know, across the implementation. So some of it is actually, you know, policies that the company has, you know, how do they, you know, try to minimize the human elements, right? You know, to try, try to avoid, you know, making sure you have training so that your, your folks aren't clicking links that they shouldn't be clicking and stuff. So, you know, so it ranges a spectrum. So definitely, I think you need a lot of those NIST controls. And that's kind of what CMMC is all about, right, is, is, is making, you know, trying to get companies to get more serious about that. Um, but then on the other side, you do have systems that have a bunch of code, sometimes code from a lot of different places. And, um, and so you do, you know, it is a best practice. I think most cybersecurity folks would say, yes, it, it's great to have red teams come in periodically to, to try to find those things that you may have all kinds of automated tools, but, you know, they just might not find some of those zero day stuff or, or kind of really, really obscure uh, uh, vulnerabilities. So yeah, that's, that's why we have a CD database and, 
And so red teams is just a good practice in conjunction with a bunch of other things. The issue here though, um, that, that as I understand it between the Navy and platform one, it, what, it wasn't so much that they had issue with how their um, security was. It no, was no, no, no. I, I didn't. Oh, okay. We didn't get it. Well, let's. Oh, okay. Let, let me like let's read that part out because this this article is actually quite interesting. Efforts to expand the Air Force's software development environment platform one have stalled over um, after some senior military IT leaders raised cybersecurity concerns about the platform. The concerns centered on officials' understanding of the architecture, policies of the environment, and a perceived lack of security documentation. Some officials have tried to outright ban the use of code stored in one of its repositories, which is Iron Bank. Uh, the problem for some, Slaughter said, and this is uh, the former, uh, I think he was the manager of Platform One, Rob Slaughter, they, Platform One, just don't have the homework in the right format. So rather than, so I think that kind of gets a little bit back to this red team verse, like having Excel documentation, but I'd like to hear what you had to say on that, but the Navy is working on its own DevSecOps platform similar to Platform One called Black Pearl. Officials in the Navy and Air Force have been negotiating reciprocity agreements to avoid Navy redoing all the work already accomplished by Platform One, but talks stalled over documentation details concerning the way Platform One accepted risk and how it stored documentation about its security practices, officials said. And so I think this kind of documentation aspect of it is key but then also like how do we know i think that documentation is interesting because there's also talk about the software bill of materials because it's like there is a lot of random open source code that's not really being supported and can provide these vulnerabilities and so the insight into that will be key but um anyway i I'd like to kind of get your your reaction to what's kind of going on here with platform one black pearl reciprocity and cybersecurity. Yeah, so I won't pretend to have all the intel, but um, the little bit I, that I do know is, yeah, Black Pearl was very, very, you know, very much modeled on Platform One. They, the Navy wanted to have their own thing. I personally kind of wish they would have just sort of became a Platform One kind of super user or something. But you know, they they wanted to have their own thing. So so Black Pearl's more tailored for the Navy. Um, as I understand it, it's less about how Platform One accepts risk for the different containers uh, that go into kind of the Iron Bank. And a lot more is that the Navy has a system in the way that they review, you know, security artifacts and that the Air Force wasn't able to provide artifacts in the way that was used to being accepted. And so there was there was just some discrepancies in great Excel debate. You know, you know, different every every service. This goes back to each service has their own systems for everything. Nobody talks, nobody shares. So because this is just a classic joint problem that this is just one example of many. But yeah, so they, they weren't able to kind of get the information into each other's formats and the way the systems that the way the systems accepted it. So that to me, that was the, as I understood it, the, the biggest issue. Um, but otherwise, the, the Black Pearl was going to, you know, as part of this reciprocity was going to pretty much accept, you know, most of the stuff that Platform One was already doing, especially with regards to accrediting the different uh, uh, Kubernetes containers and stuff. So so I think this one will be worked out in the fairly near term. I, I don't think this will be a persistent issue. But. Yeah, I think uh, Nick Shailan on his way out was kind of boasting there's now Iron Bank has over 800 plus hardened containers, mm-hmm. which is actually up quite a bit from his last quote. I think in like the beginning of the year, it was just like 200 and now it's like 800. So a lot, a lot of work's been done. doing and done. So yeah, it would really be a shame if like Nick Shailan, if he's leaving who's protecting platform one and how was it ever protected before, like through reprogramming and now they got some customers. Right. But like, you know, I hope that kind of experiment doesn't collapse. I think maybe it's too far along to kind of, you know, be let go, but we'll see. Well, it is one of those programs. This kind of goes to how, how should an enterprise program like that, how should it be funded? Right. I I think the Navy in the way that they've sort of done some of these kind of things in the past with, a fee for service, which is the Air Force isn't quite as good at, um, is they would have said, you know, if you have customers, they fund it. And I think that's kind of how Platform One is for the most part has been surviving because they didn't get a lot of their own dedicated funding. But at the same time, you do need some dedicated funding, right, to kind of improve the platform and to make it more attractive and to, you know, you know, constantly kind of, you know, iron out any of the rough edges so that you you get you get more customers. So there is sort of a little bit of a 
chicken and egg thing, I, I think, with that. But um, yeah, I don't think platform one will go away. I think it's made its home, you know, in, in the heart of so many different software programs. And I think it'll just continue to get used more. I did want to comment on your SBOM though. So SBOM's sort of separate from this, but on the supply chain security front, there, there, there will be, you'll see a lot more on this. There's legislation coming down too on this that um, probably every military software program will have to have some type of software bill of materials. There's a lot of work behind the scenes with industry actually to make that automated so that a lot of the different repositories uh, can be shared um, or, or at least have the provenance of them can be shared so that you can say, okay, that's being used, that's being used. Let me go look in this system, probably controlled by NIST or NTIA, that, you know, okay, yep, that that comes from these countries. There's not any code in there that is suspect. Not that you would stop doing cybersecurity or red team or, you know, do all the same things you would monitor, you would typically monitor, but you could at least trust the provenance that it didn't come from a Russia, you know, um, you know, one of one of the, one of their software houses, you know, and stuff like that. And it's probably, you know, has probably all kinds of stuff you don't want in it. So yeah. So there's a lot going on in that front that I'll hear. I think we'll hear a lot more about in the next year or so. Next one we got the US Navy launched a missile from a goat. Wait, what? Popular science. A video shared by the Department of Defense last week shows an uninhabited ship, the USV Ranger, successfully firing an SM6 missile. The uncrewed surface ship vessel Ranger is one of the one of at least two robot ships that the Navy uses to test autonomy in collaboration with the Department of Defense's Strategic Capabilities Office. Alongside the USV Nomad, USV Ranger is a repurposed commercial fast supply ship or the kind of boat used regularly and quickly to bring deliveries to oil rigs. So this, uh, you know, we've been talking a little bit about this, but, you know, that's a pretty good experiment right there. Your Navy's doing cool stuff, right? <laughs> They're shooting an SM6. That's not a cheap, cheap missile round right there. Um, and they've done it from, so they've done it from the Ranger. Of course, that was probably man in the loop, the whole thing, but it was on an uncrewed surface vessel. And so that's a pretty big milestone. And, you know, what they've done there, I think the strategic capabilities office really needs to get like a pat on the back for this one, because this just seems like it's been kind of a success, success all around and it's transitioning to the Navy and they're probably going to put in this, uh, you know, 59 uh, task force with 59 exercise there in the Middle East. So, you know, I'm, I'm pretty bullish on it. Good stuff. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, looks very promising. Uh, the last one we'll do here. Um, is actually kind of interesting. Former U.S. Air Force acquisitions are could help the U.K. build its future fighter from Defense News. Air Chief Marshal uh, Mike Win- Winston asked me to meet in Washington and said, we want you to digitally transform the whole service and we need help to do it. This is Roper speaking. Uh, they want to chase a digital engineering approach for future fighters. They want to do the same cloud approach that we did doing containerization, containerized development for software. One of Roper's First task will be to provide input to the RAF on how to build the cloud environment and coding infrastructure for agile software development. So it's kind of interesting here that they're kind of talking about the future fire, but then they're really kind of, I think they're kind of talking about this broader, you know, software infrastructure and tooling, um, which potentially the future fighter might be based on, but I think they're already moving forward with like the Tempest or whatever it might be called. Um, and so I'm not really sure how these two things interact or, but I guess he's kind of advising on both of them. Well, I think it goes to the the digital trinity, right? That the yeah, that's all. Yeah. yeah. So it wasn't part of the digital century series, or was, or was the was. isn't the digital the digital trinity is like a bigger principle, right? And the the digital century series was one instantiation of that. Well, I, I would say that the the digital trinity was the foundation for the digital century series because okay. you essentially sort of need. You sort of do need this digital engineering infrastructure, which I don't really think could be um, underrated. I, I mean, d- underrated in the ter- in the sense of the challenges for standing it up, right? You really do have to sort of get get the folks that have expertise in uh, the different tools that that are used in that environment. You know, uh, get the expertise to kind of build the models that you need to be you need to build. Uh, get industry to understand how to play in that space and. So there's a lot of learning and there's just a lot of like sort of uh, foundational stuff. So I think that's probably where Dr. Roper is doing. He's probably not going to be 
designing aircraft as much as he probably would love to do it, but he's going to kind of help them understand uh, the pieces of the puzzle that they need. And then the agile software development piece is, is really critical because, you know, like, like has been talked about a lot, um, you know, once you get the hardware piece sort of nailed down using digital engineering, uh, the, the software is going to be where you get a lot of your additional capability, you know, your responsiveness and, you, you know, the AI and all kind of things that you add and, and just, you know, all the different things you can continue to do with a hardware platform just by updating the software. So, yeah, so I think he's trying to help them understand how all of that comes together, get that in place. And then, you know, I could see the Tempest kind of being like the NGAD, right, in, in, in doing a lot of um uh, a lot of the same, having a lot of the same infrastructure of the architecture, you know, having that open systems and, and, and all that sort of thing. So, so they're probably trying to take some lessons to as much as Dr. Ripper can share about NGET to, to apply that to Tempest. So, yeah. Well, as uh, Roperism is potentially being purged out of the Air Force, U.S. Air Force, it looks like the U.K. is potentially, you know, embracing Roperisms is what I'll call it for now. But, yeah. which is kind of an interesting uh, progression there, you know, interesting stuff. And we'll, we'll see what happens uh, with their service. You know, one of the, inter- the maybe more useful things about, I guess, the Shailon approach to this kind of uh, digital infrastructure might be that if the Royal Air Force is just like a much smaller organization, maybe they will be able to kind of get into that single kind of architecture instead of systems rather than having all these other moving parts trying to go in different directions. And it's just like, let's just get, you know, maybe it scopes the problem better and they're better able to shift because of their size. Yeah, I, I certainly hope so. I mean, they definitely are smaller and they, they um, you know, very select group of people, I'll say, you know, the work that I've done with the Royal Air Force, they're, they're, they're pretty, pretty talented. They, they pick their top engineers and they, you know, they're usually like A levels from top universities and all that kind of stuff. So so they have the talent. I think they have the, um, they seem to have the resources, which isn't always the case for them. But uh, the, the one challenge I think will be is that the culture generally of UK acquisition is very, very risk averse. Um, and so it will be interesting, I think, to see just how, you know, how that culture can shift and, and, and adapt to this new mindset where you're doing things more iteratively. You're not necessarily planning everything out in, you know, ad nauseum, the, there is a little bit of, uh, you know, the UK does sort of like that um, a little bit more certainty, I feel like, and a little bit more where they can spend a few months doing engineering analysis and get comfortable because they, they have different liability laws on the military where they uh, leaders who sign off on things actually can be held personally liable. So, so it kind of changes the, the paradigm a little bit. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see where they go with this. I, I have, I, I have a lot of hope that they'll, they'll figure it out. So yeah, skin in the game. Interesting. I didn't, I didn't know about that. But that's all we got time for this week. Thanks, Matt, for joining, and we'll talk to you next time. Yeah, thanks, sir. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.